A 30-year-old man feels burning and stabbing sensations along his pelvic region. It's constant and sometimes even feels like a golf ball is sitting in the middle of his pelvis. Sitting can make the pain worse, as does constipation sometimes. He's a triathlete and was recently training for the cycling event. He felt that the pain has gotten worse after cycling for long periods of time. Sometimes having sex makes his pain feel even worse. He feels guilt and shame. Who should he even see about this? Do men have pain with sex? Was this normal? Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira Kirpaker and Dr. Alopi Patel. We are the female pain docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary. Welcome back to a special episode of the Herd Podcast. Now, today we're going to talk about a topic that is even more stigmatized than women's pelvic pain condition, and that's men's pelvic pain. Chronic pelvic pain can affect both men and women, and although we've spent a ton of time speaking about female pelvic pain, we want to remind our audience that male pelvic pain can be just as debilitating and life-consuming. The average age of pelvic pain in men is about 43 years old. The pain can be perineal, genital, or even abdominal. Some statistics quote that the prevalence of pelvic pain in the United States is 2 to 16%. Now that is a wide range, and I would not be surprised if that number is even higher, but is underestimated due to stigma associated with coming forward with pelvic pain. Common pain conditions can include conditions which often affect the women population as well, such as UTIs, cystitis, painful bladder syndrome, pudental nerve pain, and more. However, unique conditions include prostatitis, testicular pain, ejaculation or erection-related pain, post-vasectomy pain, and more. We encourage all patients with pelvic pain to empower themselves with knowledge so they can seek the appropriate treatment. So today we're really excited to have a special guest who has made a significant impact in the world of sexual medicine, Dr. Raina Malik. Dr. Malik is a urologist and pelvic surgeon. She manages pelvic floor disorders, including pelvic organ prolapse, urinary incontinence, overactive bladder, and more. She is highly skilled in surgical techniques for management of complex pelvic conditions and is increasing quality of life for numerous patients. Not only is she an esteemed academic physician, she has a popular YouTube channel with over 1.4 million subscribers and discusses all types of topics within the field of urology and sexual medicine. Dr. Mullick is also an avid social media advocate and a pioneer in utilizing social media for medical advocacy. We are thrilled that she is joining us today and sharing her expertise on male pelvic pain conditions. Welcome, Dr. Malik. I have seen some of your videos on YouTube and they are so interesting, like topics that people would be so hesitant to speak about and you address them so effectively. So kudos to you for changing the conversation around stigmatized topics. And today we're going to be talking about many different types of men's health topics that you've covered in your YouTube channel as well. So let's start with some of the more common pelvic pain conditions in men. Which conditions do you see commonly? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Patel. It's an honor to be here. Um, so yeah, with pelvic pain in men, it can be for you know many different reasons. It can be because of most commonly prostatitis. Um, 
which is essentially inflammation of the prostate. It can be due to pelvic floor dysfunction. It can be due to having an infection, either a urinary tract infection or a sexually transmitted infection. Um, or, you know, it can be sometimes, uh, you know, for other kind of rare conditions, but these are kind of the most common. I see. And how are these conditions usually diagnosed? So, you know, we rule out infection pretty, those those have really good tests in the sense of getting, you know, urinalysis and blood tests and other urine tests to rule out infection. Uh, so we can do that pretty readily. And then once we know it's not infectious, then it becomes a little bit more challenging. Um, it's, it's a lot of clinical diagnosis, so discussing symptoms. And so those can be things like suprapubic pain, testicular pain, pain in the urethra or pain with ejaculation or erection, uh, pain, uh, difficulty urinating sometimes, having um, pain in the perineum or the area between the scrotum and the anus. So it can be like a whole host of different problems. And you may have one of those problems or none of those problems. And, and that can be a sign of, you know, either chronic pelvic pain or prostatitis. And then, you know, we can assess if there's prostatitis, like chronic bacterial prostatitis by doing uh, a, a specific test where we do a prostate massage and then collect a urine sample so we can see if there's bacteria in any of the prostate secretions. But uh, if there's no infection, that doesn't mean that you don't have prostatitis. Prostatitis has different kinds. There's acute bacterial, chronic bacterial, which you could easily diagnose. And then there's non-bacterial prostatitis. And those are a little bit more challenging to diagnose. And we typically with those patients, just like with any pelvic pain patient, have to kind of try a number of different things to treat their symptoms and then, you know, see how they do and kind of go through a bunch of different options potentially until we can find something that works. And for prostatitis, is it mostly medication-based? Are there other therapies? Like as an interventional pain physician, we do blocks for different types of pain, but are there other non-medication treatments for prostatitis? Yeah, so there's certainly medications and there's you know different types of medications you can try, but then there are some kind of experimental treatments. One, you can do blocks of, you know, you can do like uh, for scrotal pain, you can do uh, cord blocks, which is where the nerves run for the scrotum. You can do pudendal nerve blocks if we think it's a nerve problem. Um, so those things you can do. And then there's also some limited data on doing kind of sacral neuromodulation for pelvic pain. And what that is, is it's a bladder pacemaker, essentially. That's what we what it's FDA approved for is for bladder symptoms. So urinary uh, frequency going often during the day, more than eight times urgency, like gotta go, gotta go and leakage of urine with that urgency for those symptoms. That's what this is FDA approved for, but there is data looking at it for pelvic pain. And what it does is essentially normalizes the nerve function of the nerve root that goes to the bladder and the pelvic floor. And so there is some data showing that that does provide benefit in patients with prostatitis or pelvic pain. So where is that placed? So it's placed on the back. So we we essentially go uh, on the back side along the S3 nerve root, which is which runs towards the it's essentially the nerve root that runs to the bladder, and then it attaches to a battery. And the nice part about this option is that it you get a test period, so you get to wear it um, with a battery on the outside for a week or two, depending on how which way it's done. And then um, after that, we take the device out, and you let us know if it's good or bad. And you, if it's good, we can then implant 
the full device in with the battery underneath the skin, or we can just move on to something else. That's so interesting because there's a lot of overlap between different types of um, pain treatments within the field of urology as well as pain medicine. So you mentioned um, pudendal nerve blocks. So tell us how you do pudendal nerve blocks as well. Yeah, so we probably do them very different from you. <laughs> so we typically do them transperineally, meaning we do them um, where the pudendal nerve block kind of goes along Alcox Canal. You can kind of get to that area through the perineum or the area between the scrotum and the anus. You can feel the bony landmarks and you can insert your needle just medial and superior to that area to get the nerve root. And that's where we inject it. That's so interesting. And it's an ultrasound guided or? Um... Nope, just by bony landmarks. That's so interesting. So pudendal nerve gets a lot of talk, I think, on social media. It's such a popular topic. And I've seen that there's, you know, obviously vaginal approach, transgluteal approach, which is how pain physicians often do it. So it's very interesting to see the different ways of of targeting the pudendal nerve. Yeah. Um, you also mentioned uh, pelvic floor dysfunction. So do you see in male patients that this is often the cause of pain or do you see pelvic floor dysfunction secondary to another sort of um, pain syndrome? So with pelvic floor dysfunction, I typically see, you know, it's hard to t say, right? I think sometimes it can be what comes first, the chicken or the egg, right? Um, but ultimately, the bottom line for me is that if they have pelvic floor dysfunction, I can usually diagnose that with a, a rectal exam to kind of palpate the muscles of the pelvic floor. And if they're tense or tender, um, that tells me that they probably have pelvic floor dysfunction alongside all these other symptoms they're having. And so in those patients, I think pelvic floor therapy would be very helpful. And what about suppositories for pelvic floor dysfunction? Yeah. So I, I like to tell patients they're like a mandate, right? They're not going to cure anything, but certainly they can help. So there's different, different formulations. I tend to do baclofen suppositories because I think the muscle relaxant thing helps. You can do Valium and baclofen or just Valium alone. Um, and so that's, that's typically what I offer. And pelvic floor trigger points for pelvic floor dysfunction. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so there's data, and I, you know, I've done I, I've done some in terms of uh, uh, Botox to the pelvic floor trigger points. You can do, you know, numbing medications to the trigger points, or just dry needling. And there's some evidence that even just dry needling the area helps. Um, so you can kind of try those different things. The challenges, as you probably know, is insurance coverage is challenging for these these procedures for patients, which makes it hard. Um, and so, so and things like there's there's very little FDA approved options for these patients, right? Everything is kind of experimental. There's even some data looking at shockwave therapy and seeing if that helps. And, you know, I think that it's all still really um, not clear what is the right pathway and each individual person is different. That's absolutely true. And oftentimes it requires many different approaches to help with pain management. Now, another area of of women's health as well as men's health that's very stigmatized is sexual pain, which I'm sure is even more so stigmatized in within the male population. What are some common causes of sexual pain? Yeah, so it's very similar, right? It's the same, the same things that cause pelvic pain are going to cause sexual pain, right? It's like the pelvic floor muscles are tense, you're having inflammation. And so you might not have the pain in the belly or the pain in the testicles, but it may just manifest itself with pain during sex, right? And so it's the same real, um, same real issues. And, you know, these patients do show up I and mean, they're, they're shocked. Like, why does it hurt all of a sudden when I get an erection or when I ejaculate? It's very traumatizing. 
Absolutely. And the treatments are essentially similar to what we just spoke about in terms of medications, therapy, physical therapy, yeah. uh, trigger points potentially as well. Yeah. Um, and then we also spoke about the pudendal nerve. Do you see pudendal neuralgia as part of your practice? And what are some treatments for that? Yeah, so I see some of it. I find it very challenging because there's not a lot of really great options. And you can, you know, I, there's a lot of kind of work they can do with changing their lifestyle. So, like sitting uh, not on hard surfaces, sitting on cushions, and, you know, avoiding activities that exacerbate it, like cycling, for example. Um, you know, and those things can help. I think I'm a firm believer in, in, in general, in like these patients get kind of a central sensitization. And so, so they can benefit from doing any sort of mindfulness-based stress reduction. So whether it's meditation, yoga, those things can really help. And just really understanding that it's a chronic process. And then, you know, with, with pedental neuralgia, it's very challenging because ultimately, again, it's like you can do nerve blocks and they can give them benefit for four to five weeks, but then you're back to doing nerve blocks. And like, at what point it, does it give you a lasting benefit? It's hard to say. Right. Absolutely. And that's such an interesting area where oftentimes patients have this like multidisciplinary team, essentially, with many different physicians working on them. So I, I do find that interesting. Um, Proctalgia Fujax, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I, I, <laughs> well, I don't even, <laughs> I don't see that at all. So I have no thoughts on that. <laughs> do patients present to you at all, like for like prostate related pain that might potentially be, you know, something else that's, that could be Proctalgia Fujax? I mean, it's hard to say, right? When they come to see us, they've typically, like, it's not usually a rectal problem. It's usually a prostate problem. And so um, I've not, I've not seen that typically, but um, yeah, it just doesn't, I haven't seen it personally. Got it. Other causes of testicular or scrotal pain that we may not have addressed that you can um, tell our audience about? Yeah. So there's a lot of, you know, sometimes there's orcal, it's called orcalgia, but it can be of unknown causes and you can, you know, sometimes you'll see it post vasectomy, but like it's 1% of patients, but in that 1%, it can be very, very traumatizing and, and very disturbing. And so that's, that's one cause of it. Other times hernia surgery can sometimes impinge on nerves and cause orcalgia. Um, and then, you know, other times we can't really find a cause. So you can do things like assess for um, the, you know, relief with nerve blocks. And then there are surgeries available, like denervation surgeries that are done by specialized urologists who kind of manage um, chronic uh, orcalgia. And, uh, and so those are things that are available. But again, it's usually these patients, as you know, have gone to multiple providers before they find one person who really can uh, take the time with them and, and work, work through it with them. You mentioned post-vasectomy pain, and that is something that I have seen in my office. Um, talk about that, because I think that's such an important part uh, for people to understand when they undergo vasectomies as well. Well, you know, I think it is, it is important, but like 99% of vasectomies are totally fine, right? And vasectomies are much safer than tubal ligations for, for if you're comparing a male to a female. And so in that case, I would not discourage people from getting a vasectomy, but yes, absolutely. It's important for people to realize that 1%, so one out of a hundred people will develop scrotal pain after a vasectomy that may not go away. 
And so sometimes we can find like a granuloma or an area that we can excise and the pain can go away, but that's not always the case. And so, um, so if you have chronic pain after a vasectomy, definitely see a urologist, but realize that again, um, anyone who's suffering from pain, it just requires a lot of time and effort and, and potentially many visits before you'll achieve you know, any sort of relief and it may never be complete relief. And so I think it's just a matter of realizing that it's, we want to do the right thing for you and do the best we can, but we're just limited in options. Pain is very complex and multifactorial and we can't always treat every aspect of it. That's definitely a good point to mention because there are many layers of pain in general and you can try medications and therapy, but some pain might continue to be chronic. Another question I actually had was uh, regarding testicular pain versus scrotal pain. So um, in terms of a pain physician sort of mentality, the innervation is very different in terms of where the pain is coming from. How do you help patients understand whether they're feeling like superficial pain or deeper pain, especially because it might affect how you treat that pain? Yeah. I mean, I think they get a sense of like skin pain is very different, right? It's like they can tell that it's like when I touch it, when I, uh, when something grazes it, when I sit, I feel it. It's just a different kind of pain. Whereas when they have testicular pain, they can tell based on the way their testicles are lifted. If someone squeezes the testicle, um, they're going to feel more pain versus not. And so um, I think scrotal pain is actually very uncommon. It's more testicular pain that we're seeing. That's very good to know because I often in our practice see like patients who've after many different sort of physicians, if they still haven't had relief, someone will send them to us for some sort of nerve block, but really where the pain is coming from is going to determine which nerve block we go ahead with kind of getting to that. So I, I, you know, I have an interest in transgender medicine and uh, also seen patients who've had pain after tucking. Uh, What are your, what are your thoughts on patients who might develop chronic pain from, from contouring? Yeah, so that's interesting. I, I have one patient who came to me after having Fournier's gangrene, which is uh, a life-threatening infection. Um, and for that, he had to have his testicles moved and he developed chronic pain. And you know what we think is that it's just the scarring and the positioning that is uncomfortable and they, the, the testicles can't move anymore, right? So yes, I think it's certainly a risk. Um, does it happen often? I mean, we see tons of patients who develop um, issues with, you you know, infection, or there's, you know, several transgender patients who don't have these issues, right? So I think it's rare. And, you know, there's no, the issue with this is there's no guarantee that if you relieve the tucking or move the testicles in some way that their pain would get better. Right. Very interesting to, to see how, how that can happen as well. Um, So we, so we spoke about a lot of different pain conditions. Um, What about erectile dysfunction? That's something that has so much research, so much talk around it. Um, tell us a bit more about the types of treatments and the stigma associated with that as well. Yeah, so erectile dysfunction is very, very common. It affects over 50% of men, 52 and above, and that just increases with age. And it is extremely challenging, I think, for men to um, to seek care. And it's very devastating for them, right? This is something that they had full control over and they really feel like it helps them identify, you know, their sexuality, their, their individuality as a man. And so it can be very distressing and it can also 
you know, be very, um, very hard in your relationship, right? So it's not just to yourself, but also in your relationship with your partner. And so the treatment really depends on the cause. So there's really five major causes of erectile dysfunction. It's hormonal, it's vascular. So things like diabetes and high blood pressure, it can be neurologics. So things like if you have a spinal cord injury or you have multiple sclerosis or other things that can affect the nerves to the area, um, it can be psychogenic, right? So like if you are having, I, I tell this to men a lot, like say you don't perform well once, right? And then the next time you're about to perform, you're like, oh man, you're all in your head. Like, of course you're not going to perform that. And it becomes this vicious cycle. And then lastly, like medication side effects and things like that are from procedures. You can have erectile dysfunction. The treatment really depends on what the cause is, but the large majority of erectile dysfunction is vascular in nature. So people who have high blood pressure, diabetes, or sometimes they won't have them yet, but erectile dysfunction can be a red flag or like a harbinger of people say canary in the coal mine, letting you know that, Hey, you know, you might develop heart disease or you might develop other issues. So it's always really important for these men to go see a, a physician, a primary care physician and get their heart evaluated, get their cholesterol checked, get their blood pressure checked and their, you know, and their blood glucose to make sure that they're not developing other conditions. Um, I've, I've diagnosed many men with high cholesterol, many men with high blood pressure, many men with diabetes um, who just come in for erectile dysfunction. So fixing those issues and, and maintaining your health is the number one thing. And then the second thing, the most common thing is treating the vascular dysfunction. So that can be with medications, which everyone has heard of, like Cialis, Viagra, or Sildenafil, Tadalafil are the generic names. Um, and then there's other options like uh, vacuum erection devices. There's injections that you can give yourself that can help get erections or there's surgeries. So good to know. I didn't realize that there were so many different options because you often hear just Viagra, but patients do have other options to to uh, help with that. And also very important for our listeners to take away that erectile dysfunction, like you said, could be a harbinger of something something else that they should get checked out. So what resources can patients turn to for help? So male patients, especially, I feel like with male sexual dysfunction can feel stigmatized. What are some resources that you would recommend? So I think the Urology Care Foundation has some really great resources that people can look to. Um, there's also, um, there's, you know, also you can check out my YouTube channel. I make a lot <laughs> of uh, sexual medicine content that's really educational and valuable. Um, and then, you know, I think in general, when you're searching for any sort of content, you're going to find lots of information, but really try to look for credible sources. So whether they're made from a hospital or a board certified physician, um, that's where you want to go seeking information. There's a ton of great podcasts that are led by urologists who talk about erectile dysfunction. If you're obviously listening to this, you you like to listen to podcasts. So, um, so that's a great place to look as well. And, uh, and generally speaking, there are no shortcuts, right? Like if someone's selling you a pill to get you, that's going to fix everything immediately. Like it's not, no, it's just not. So, um, you know, don't fall into the trap of thinking that that's, you know, that's normal. Excellent. Thank you so much. Okay. So I love to end with this because everybody has such a different perspective and it's good to know if you had to give patients one piece of advice, anything at all, what would you tell them? So I tell my, all my viewers, this at the end of every video is just take care of yourself because you're worth it. And that means like, 
you know, a lot of times, particularly we get so wrapped up in, in life and taking care of other people and our jobs that we never stop and say like, oh, I don't feel good or I'm not as healthy as I wish I was. And like, make yourself a priority and actually do that, whether it's going to see the doctor, getting that gym membership you've been holding off or buying healthier food or whatever it is, like you're capable of amazing things. Every single person on this planet is capable of amazing things. You just have to commit and do it. So always prioritize yourself in a way that's going to get you better, right? So like, if you feel like something's not working, get to the bottom of it, get some initiative and figure it out and get help, like professional help when you need it, like doctors, therapists, whatever it is, you know, we're here for you. Yes. Treat your body like it's the body of somebody you love, right? So that's such a, such a good piece of advice. If patients want to see you, where can they reach you? Yeah. So I have an office in Baltimore and Maryland. Uh, They can call 410-328-2887 to make an appointment or look me up online. My number is there. Um, And uh, obviously feel free to reach out. Thank you so much, Dr. Malik. This was a very informative uh, discussion and I'm excited to share it with our patients. We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at the female pain docs for more content. Send us an email at the docs at gmail if you have any topics in particular you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our website at www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.